This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, so as mentioned, uh, the Alberta government is is looking for ways to bolster the vaccine industry in Alberta, both the development and the manufacturing. And certainly there are companies that have been doing that, maybe in spite of, not necessarily because of government support. Uh, I think there's been a real lack of them. You heard on the news today, Entos Pharmaceuticals, based out of Edmonton, they've got their vaccine candidate into clinical trials. Of course, Providence Therapeutics already has their vaccine candidate into clinical trials. They've got an agreement in place with the province of Manitoba, and so they're trying to do what they can uh, to grow and be a part of a, a, a bigger industry in Canada, if we can get there. So joining us for some thoughts on the government's uh, plans here and kind of what the industry is is looking for in terms of support and partnerships from government. Very pleased to welcome to the program Brad Sorensen, uh, founder and CEO of Providence Therapeutics, providencetherapeutics.com. Brad, appreciate you making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I, I, wish, I, could, uh, I wish I could get the government to do a bag scape. <laughs> that would that would go a long way. I, I think you're right. Um, let me get your initial reaction. So you heard the Alberta government's plans are going to put out um, requests for proposals. Uh, what, what do you make of that, first of all? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we've been we've been pushing both federally and provincially for quite some time now, as you're aware. Uh, I I think that this is, you know, the Alberta government's getting closer to. To sort of figuring out what they're going to do, um, and so they didn't want to look at it on a on a company by company basis. They wanted to look at it as an industry, and uh, so we're happy to participate and submit a proposal. Um, and uh, hopefully, there's there's something to back up the words. What what you know would you be looking for? What what is the industry looking for? Well, uh, I mean, we were looking for for support so that we can get up and, and start producing. And so that's, you know, we went out and we were looking for, for orders for vaccines. Um, Manitoba stepped up and, and, and gave us that order. You know, they didn't, when we talked to them, they didn't ask us, you know, what we could do for them. They, you know, they asked us what they could do for us. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've talked to other provinces, uh, it's largely what can you do for us? You know, are you going to put in a plant here? Are you going to do this for that? I said, well, we can we can give you vaccines and we can provide you security of supply. Um, the irony is, is you know, we Manitoba didn't even realize we were operating in their in their province when they talked to us, um, and and that was you know kind of a a bonus for them. Um, you know, we were operating in Ontario. We were operating in Alberta, and uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of acknowledgement or recognition that we already had made those decisions. It's like, you know, what else can we get? And uh, and so it, it'll be interesting if it's again more of 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 what else can we get, or is it, you know, what do you need 
in order to uh, to move this industry forward. Well, and when we look at what's happened in other countries, and, and I think the experience of Moderna in the U.S. is an interesting one because, you know, there, there's a parallel there. They were kind of an upstart, and uh, this this is their first vaccine, I think their first, uh, you know, pharmaceutical product, period. Mm-hmm. And, and there's been some pretty significant government support. We can point to examples in other countries. So we haven't really seen that in Canada here, have we? Well, let's put it in perspective. Moderna just a couple of weeks ago gave guidance for what they expect for revenues for 2021 and it was 16 billion dollars um so the the u.s government gave them a billion dollars to to advance their program and they and they're getting support with all of their clinical programs i mean they don't have to run a clinical program they just send their material to the nih and the nih runs their program for them um but is that a losing proposition for the u.s government well they're they're first in getting their people vaccinated and they're collecting tax revenues now on a on 16 billion dollars worth of sales um and canada's contributing to those tax revenues in the u.s um so the question you know is does canada want to to be involved or they just want to keep paying for for products somewhere else so is is this starting to change? We mentioned what the Alberta government's doing, what Manitoba has done. I, I don't know if you're getting any kind of uh, different response these days from Ottawa, but uh, are, are are things different? Are they improving? What's what's your? Uh, I, I hope so. So we've had a, we've had more engagement out of out of Ottawa than we have like in the last month than we had the entire entirety of last year. Um, today, for instance, I, I had a 45 minute meeting with the full vaccine task force um now uh, i think it was a good meeting <laughs> uh <laughs> but it was a uh you know even that was interesting you know you know we had basically members of the task force say well it looks like you guys are too late and why bother and um and that's a little disheartening when that's the task force right. that's advising the federal government um but you know there was other members of the task force that that asked, you know, pretty intelligent questions. And, and, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, I hope that they advise the federal government as to the viability of our program and leave that, you know, the decision-making and policy decision-making up to, up to the elected leaders. Um, as it relates to the provinces, well, you know, I commented on, on Manitoba, which I, I believe you know, elevated the discussion. I don't think we'd be having this discussion if Manitoba Brian Pallister didn't do what he did. Um, you know, I'm yet to see how things are going to shape up in Alberta. Ontario, it looks like they are just happy to have a branch plant. You know, they, they just want somebody to put a plant in there so they can stand in front of the plant and cut a ribbon and say, we're making vaccines here. You know, it doesn't matter if that company is, is Canadian or, or American or wherever they're from. Um, they just like to have they like to have a, a plant that they can stand in front of. Uh, in Alberta, we'll see. We'll see what what it is that they want. Uh, I don't think they're going to see them build a plant here unless there's unless there's infrastructure and industry. So, um, I'm optimistic that we'll get something done here in Alberta. Um, you know, one of the questions I got from the vaccine task force is, well, what if you don't get the funding? from from you know the canadian government at one level or the other i said well we'll continue to move our program forward but ultimately we'll leave canada and and that's 
that's a shame to say. I mean, I was yeah. born in Calgary. I lived here my whole life. But it's, if it's not a competitive environment, and, and tax-wise it certainly isn't, um, and, then, and then if it's not a competitive environment where you've actually got government supporting your competitors as opposed to local industry, um, there really is no other choice. Yeah, and that, that is the reality of it. I mean, I think there's no question about that. Now, you, you get back to the comment that was made by one of the members of the task force, this notion of being too late. And and I think to some extent that exists in the general public, that companies develop vaccines. We're going to buy a bunch of them. We'll get people vaccinated, and then everything will be fine. But, I mean, you know, the question of longer term here, because I think we're still going to be dealing with this virus or variants of this virus maybe for a while. I think there's going to be need for booster shots, that kind of thing. But I think there's a whole industry that's opening up here, especially when it comes to mRNA vaccine technology and, and how we can target maybe other viruses with this. There's a lot of potential here. So to me, it seems like we're kind of getting in on the ground floor potentially when it comes to a really burgeoning medical technology, biotechnology industry. Are, are we missing the big picture here, do you think? And does, does the comment of, you know, you guys are too late, is, is that missing the big picture? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's not even a question. Um, you know, yeah, they, yeah, the, there, there's definitely a, a lack of vision as to, as to, you know, first they they were skeptical of the mRNA technology, you know, this time last year, and then it proved out to be a winner. And now that we have it in Canada, it's too late for Canada to participate. I mean, that would be that be like the equivalent of saying, well, you know, if you're if you're eighth place going into the playoffs, why bother? Yeah, like, right, exactly. Like, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, if you've got a ticket, you've got a ticket, and you've got a chance to do something, right? And uh, and that's all we've ever asked for is is, is let us showcase and, and show what we can do. Um, we've got fen- phenomenal data as it relates to oncology. You know, I'm looking forward to getting back and, 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 and doing our, our cancer vaccines. Um, certainly other infectious diseases. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that we can do. And and you're right. This is there's There's a handful of mRNA companies in the world, and they're all worth multiple billions of dollars. And do we want to have that in Alberta, in Canada, or not? Yeah. So, and by the way, can you give us an update? Where are things out with uh, with the clinical trial? Uh, it's going fantastic. Uh, so, the clinical trial is 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 blinded, and what that means right. is we actually we you know we're not, as a company we're not allowed to know, and we we don't want to know because we want to follow the rules. Um, how the sort of the efficacy and the results are going. But the, the, the primary purpose of a phase one trial is safety. And uh, even though we're blinded to our trial, it's hard to blind zero. So we have a, we have a safety committee that meet, meets on a, on a very regular basis to evaluate any incidences that arise from people that receive our vaccines. And we've had zero incidences. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that's about as good as you can do on a phase one clinical trial. And so um, we we really do believe that we've got the best in class vaccine. And we we're looking forward to when the rest of that data gets released in April. And so then what would be the timeline for the phase uh, two and three? So that would begin in May. And yeah. so we'll, we'll roll right in from phase one into phase two, three uh, with the expectation that we'll get 
will complete that by uh, by October of this year and have emergency use authorization. Okay, well, we'll continue to follow that, and I guess we'll see in 10 days from now where the Alberta government goes from here. Uh, much more at Providence uh, pharma, uh, Providence is the website. Brad, thanks so much for making some time for us here again today. Appreciate it. Hey, you bet. All the best to you. All right, cheers. Uh, that is Brad Sorensen, uh, founder and CEO of Providence Therapeutics, ProvidenceTherapeutics.com, uh, based in Calgary and Toronto, as he said, well, and footprint in, in Manitoba, too. So there's a sense of kind of what companies like this have been up against in Canada, maybe what they're looking for. And, you know, the reality is, right, uh, support in other countries has kind of changed the equation when it comes to this industry. So do we want to be a part of that? Or do we want to sort of sit back and, you know, rely on what's being done in other countries, right? Because sure, yeah, look, Pfizer's a, a massive, massive company. And uh, I think Pfizer's going to be generating perhaps 2 billion vaccines this year alone. So yeah, there, there'll be plenty, plenty to go around. But uh, none of that's happening here. Look, the... Um, Whatever the ordeal is that, that Harry and Meghan are going through or have been going through, it's, it's not necessarily directly related uh, to Canada's government or even Canada's head of state, who is the Queen of Canada. But of course, the Queen is Harry's grandmother. And so this family drama inevitably does start to encircle the royal family, and it definitely affects Canadians' perceptions. So for example, if you take everything that Harry and Meghan have said at face value, and it's not flattering when it comes to the royal family, Prince Charles in particular, who would stand to be our next king. It's easy to see how one gets from one to the other. Why do we want anything to do with these people? Right. So there, there is that question, because ultimately the royal family, they're people. The king or the queen is a person and they have flaws and their perceptions and controversies and all of that. But of course, the, the crown is also a very powerful symbol in our government. And so it's, it's difficult to separate the two, but I think it's important to understand that. Because if Canadians want to end the monarchy because of how we perceive these people, what are the implications on our system of government? And how this Westminster-style democracy known as Canada functions? So I think it's an important question if indeed we're going to go down that path, and if nothing else, I suppose, to illustrate how challenging it would be to fundamentally change our system of government. Well, joining us to talk more about some of these big questions, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Professor Philippe uh, Lagasse. He's an associate professor uh, of international affairs. He's the William and Jeannie Barton Chair in International Affairs, focusing on, among other things, Canadian government and the Westminster system at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Professor Lagasse, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. In the context of um, Canada's system of government, who our head of state is, is anybody other than the Queen in the royal family relevant in, in a Canadian context? Uh, no. Strictly speaking, constitutionally, no. Uh, right now, we simply recognize the British Queen as uh, the Queen of Canada. And that's a simple rule, which means that we don't really recognize any of the other members of the royal family as having any constitutional significance in Canada. Now, it gets interesting when you start looking at uh, some legal questions. So, for instance, the Prince of Wales and Duke of Edinburgh are both members of the Canadian Privy Council. 
and a number of royals serve as colonels in chief and patrons of various charities. So, funnily enough, they have some some institutional connections, but not constitutional ones. Constitutionally, only the queen matters. Uh, which which speaks to the the crown, which is you know it, it runs throughout our government, and and you know I think when people think of the monarch, right, we think of the queen, the person, or we think of the royal family, and perceptions are what they are, given the the celebrity nature, I suppose, of of our society and the royal family. But what does the crown represent? Because maybe it's something that we as Canadians don't don't fully understand, because it, but it's so central to our system of government. Well, I, I think it's important to start by noting that in the English constitutional tradition, the crown is our concept of the state. Uh, and so when we contrast ourselves with continental Europe, in particular in the civil law tradition that created this notion of the state, l'état in French, we don't have that. We have the crown. So what that means is our state is a legal person, so Her Majesty and Right of Canada. And as odd as that may seem, that just flows from this monarchical concept where sovereignty is held by this one person, and they are the personification of the state. So all governing authority, legislating authority, even judicial authority in Canada flows from this abstract concept, which is the crown. And that also helps explain, for instance, why uh, First Nations treaties are, are with the crown, because it's it's with the state. It's not simply with the government, right? Um, and as... Uh, my fellow political scientist David E. Smith likes to point out the Canadian people, so the people, right, which is what we typically tend to associate with sovereignty and Republican systems, they're nowhere to be found in the Constitution. Canadians as a people are not in the Constitution. Their parliaments are, uh, their mm-hmm. courts are, the crown is, but the sovereignty is not a popular sovereignty in Canada. And that's why the crown matters so much, because it is the locus of sovereignty and therefore of governing and, and state authority. So even if we were to uh, go through the process of, of removing the monarchy, and we can talk about how challenging that would be in a second, but absent that symbol, absent that representation, who or what would have to replace that? Well, I think that's the key question, is what do you replace it with? Uh, And this was um, ultimately why the Australian uh, referendum on the monarchy ended up siding with the status quo, because even though most Australians, when they held this referendum in the 90s, were Republican and were willing to let go of the monarchy, they couldn't really agree on what would replace it. Uh, And this is really what I tell anybody who wants to replace the monarchy in Canada is, well, what exactly are you replacing it with? What do you have in mind? Uh, You can go kind of a little bit the Irish way, which is to gradually kind of extricate the monarchy from your constitution over many decades, right, and to slowly kind of replace it with other things. Uh, But if you're going to do a hard break, you need some other concept to stand in there. And if you try to go to a popular sovereignty model like they have in the United States, it would be a really big upheaval. Uh, a lot of the ways our government works wouldn't work the same way again. So it would take a lot of work. Um, alternatively, you can just say, okay, well, we're just going to leave the crown empty and just pretend it's not there. And, you know, that's one alternative. But then you, you got a bit of false consciousness there, as it were. You're pretending that you're a republic. And what would be fundamentally different than what we have now, I think, would be the question. Hmm. It's interesting because, I mean, you know, the queen matters, but in a way, I guess maybe the person doesn't. If it's a symbol, couldn't a, a different person fill that symbol? Couldn't we pick a different monarch? Yes. Uh, so that's 
uh, interesting, an interesting question. Uh, Quebec courts last year found that the rule to change who the queen is is not covered under the unanimous amending formula in the constitution. So that would mean you could either use the uh, general amending formula or even perhaps parliament on its own could, could identify somebody else as the queen. Now that's hasn't been dealt with by the Supreme Court, and I suspect that they would tell us something different. But nonetheless, it's within our power to retain the the monarchy and to retain the crown, but simply have somebody else as, as queen. There's nothing that that necessarily says that it has to be the House of Windsor. Uh, we could use we could amend the Constitution to arrive at a different royal family, or even an elected right. monarch. Right. So, I mean, you know, there's the conversation about, well, you know, if, if the UK wants Charles, maybe we'll skip Charles, we'll go with William, or maybe we'll we'll see if, if Harry's interested in the job. But I guess if we were going to go down that path, as you say, we wouldn't need to limit it to the, the royal family at all. I mean, theoretically, we could kind of like the governor general conversation, pick a well-respected Canadian and, and say, uh, here you go. You are now king. You are now queen. Right. I mean, you would want it would still be complicated because you'd have to amend the Constitution. The question is just how how difficult you which path is you'd take to do it. Mm -hmm. And you'd have other options, too. I mean, you could simply declare that the governor general is not simply the queen's representative, but is a regent. So you could pass a Regency Act saying, okay, owing to the fact that the monarch is not in Canada, we're we're saying that the governor general is just replacing uh, the the queen for all intents and purposes. I mean, we're effectively there anyway, but that would be another way to do it. Um, And as I've kind of pointed out in various places, I mean, ultimately there's so much of, of the crown, as you're mentioning, that is resting on symbols, and those symbols can be easily changed and altered and either pushed to the wayside. There's nothing that kind of binds us to, to a lot of the symbolism. So you can get rid of the queen on the money. You can you don't have to hang her portraits. You don't have to um, have her being the fount of honors and the order of Canada and things like that. So there are a number of other things that you can change without having to go down the complicated path of amending the Constitution. And as it stands now, we, we are basically in alignment with, with Britain when it comes to the uh, the succession, the path of succession, rules of succession, etc.? Yes. So what the courts in Quebec found, and this was the the federal government that that carried this case, they argued that um, the rule for determining who the monarch in Canada is simply we take as as monarch whoever is the monarch of of the United Kingdom. Now, that was contested because uh, in the past we have different precedents, notably during the abdication of uh, Edward VIII, where we insisted on having the abdication applied to us in our own law. But in this instance, the courts went with the the federal argument that we simply go along with whatever the U.K. does. Now, that raises the question of what's going to happen or what would happen if the U.K. became a republic. Uh, But that's one of those constitutional what-ifs that in our Mm -hmm. fine Canadian tradition we just pretend doesn't exist and hope for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But as it stands now, getting back to the point you raised earlier, that actually doing away with the monarchy becoming a republic or or something like it would require the unanimous consent formula the uh, that is all the provinces the parliament so both houses of parliament that's what we would need to 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 get on board in order to make that kind of a change if you're going to make it, uh, if you're going to get rid of the monarchy altogether, yes. Or if you're going to make substantial changes to its function, to the queen's functions or powers, then that falls under the office of the queen. Now, there's a little bit more ambiguity around how we know who the queen is. 
So the Quebec courts have told us that it, it's not the unanimous formula, but the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in yet, so we don't quite know. Um, they, I suspect the Supreme Court just didn't want to touch this issue because they don't want to weigh, on, weigh in on it yet, precisely because we need some exit strategies if the UK suddenly does something brash. Um, so there's a lot of unknowns here, but I think it's easy to at least say this with some confidence, that you can't simply become a republic, uh, either through parliament alone or even through the general amending formula. Uh, you would need everybody on board, all the, all the provinces. All right. Not easy to do. Uh, we'll leave it there. Professor Legacy, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks very much. Take care. Take care. Uh, Philip Legacy is Associate Professor uh, and uh, William and Jeannie Barton Chair of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, with a particular focus on um, Westminster governments, our Constitution, the monarchy, etc. So that's basically the lay of the land at the moment. The, the crown is a powerful symbol, could be replaced with something else, but that comes with varying degrees of difficulty. It is interesting that wiggle room we would have between actually the, the need to get all the provinces unanimously on board. So we could break with the UK and say, well, okay, the Queen has passed away. You guys are going with Charles, we're going with somebody else. Right? We could pick a Canadian to, to fill that role. Now, we didn't do a great job <laughs> picking the last governor general. So how might we go about uh, choosing that head of state? So would that person be a monarch? Are we talking about a, a president? So depending on, on what we are changing, some changes might be uh, easier said than done than others. And then, of course, we could just leave things as they are. Whatever drama there is in the royal family. It's kind of a separate question from, from how we function as a state. Right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brickenridge with you. 403-974-8255 is our number. There's been a lot of talk recently in Ottawa about uh, regulating uh, big social media companies, Facebook in particular, Google as well. But to what end? And, and how are we going to do this? Now, for a while, the talk was about enforcing you know, Facebook or, or Google to compensate news companies uh, for, for links to news articles, which is an interesting approach because, you know, as a few people have pointed out, any news article that you're reading will have a little box there saying, if you want to share this on Facebook, click here. So that would imply maybe that it's, it's a good thing to have your content shared widely on social media. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where, where we're going on that. And obviously, Australia got into quite a spat with Facebook and Google over this. But now the, the heritage minister, Stephen Gilboa, has been talking more about the advertising side. That uh, there's, there's too much money going to uh, digital platforms like Facebook. Okay, well, th that's a different conversation, isn't it? Look, the government wants to not advertise on Facebook and spend money advertising in Canadian media. It could certainly do that. But the funny thing about it is that they're not doing that. So there's some hypocrisy here on, on the minister's part when it comes to what he's talking about publicly and what his department, what the government, has been engaging in itself. Joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Michael Geist, who is a law professor at the University of Alberta, Canada, University of Ottawa, uh, beg your pardon, and holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. He's also a member of the Center for Law, Technology and Society. MichaelGeist.ca is his website. Professor Geist, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the oh, program. Thanks so much for having me on. 
So in terms of what the government's overall strategy, or put another way, the government's overall goal is in all of this, do, do we have a clear idea at this point? Well, I think at a high level, the Heritage Minister, Stephen Gimbo, made it pretty clear. Over the summer, he said his goal is to get money from web giants. And I think, frankly, he's he's followed through with that as his primary objective, even at, at significant costs along the way. Um, I think we're going to see all kinds of speech regulation that's going to raise some very serious issues. But fundamentally, at least on a number of fronts, whether we're talking about news or we're talking about broadcast and Netflix, his goal is to try to extract as much money as he can out of these companies, not to do it the way you would typically try to get money out of companies, which is to make sure they pay tax, um, but mm -hmm. rather through different kinds of regulation. Like, for example, the, the idea of, of compensating media organizations for the news that gets shared on, on Facebook or, or Google News. That's certainly been one, one area that he's talked about quite a lot. And, and as you mentioned off the top, there's, there's a certain irony there in that Facebook argues, and I think with, uh, with a fair amount of merit, that the value in the referral links that they send back to the news organizations is worth an enormous amount of money. In fact, news organizations themselves very often will promote and try to encourage their readers to post on these social media services and try to drive traffic back. That's how advertising, that's how they generate ad dollars. And services like Facebook actually don't copy the full articles. They just have links that go back to the sources. But nevertheless, the heritage minister said he thinks that kind of conduct is immoral if you're not paying for it, even though, as I noted in a blog post today, um, he does exactly that. He posts links to articles, in fact, sometimes has posted full broadcast videos without even linking back to the source. So does, does that make him a, a hypocrite or does he maybe not understand the, the, the very issues he's, he's talking so much about? What do you make of that? Maybe a bit of both. Um, I would say, I th I, you know, I think what he's doing, I think we're, we're honest about it. What he is doing is what just about everybody does on social media. And, and I think the problem here isn't. Uh, with the exception of uploading full broad 14-minute broadcast videos that as a, as a minister responsible for copyright in a, doing something that I think uh, certainly th those in the broadcast community would argue is, is goes beyond what you're permitted to do from a fair dealing perspective. But if we focus even just on the linking side of things, everybody shares and provides links because it's just referring people to things we find interesting. The problem isn't that he's doing it. The problem is that he He's claiming that there's something so that, that somehow it's immoral to do it without payment um, and trying to find ways to gain compensation for something that, as I say, is is very common. He does it. Many of his critics do it. Uh, and many users on social media do it. That's the thing. I mean, I, I, I can see the one perspective that if nobody was sharing anything on Facebook, Facebook would be a lot less interesting. But you know, when I post uh, content that we generate, so I posted the audio from, from our show yesterday. I posted it on, on social media because I'm trying to, to get it out to people. Hey, if you missed the show, you can uh, have a listen here. Uh, I'm using that platform to try to get my content to other people. So does Facebook owe me for that? <laughs> it would be hard to, to make that case. I'm, I'm using the technology to try to get this out to, to many people. So I, that's, that's where the, the argument kind of loses me, that, that we do use it for that purpose, to, to share. And there is value to those whose content is being shared. 
Yeah, I think you're right. In fact, I'm glad that you noted that you do it, because one of the points that I've been trying to, to, to raise is that it's the media companies themselves that are very often the, the source of many of the links. So if you're a mainstream media newspaper, if you're a Post Media or Toronto Star, you have a very active social media department that is actively posting links and encouraging your readers to share them because you know that it drives traffic back to the original source. The suggestion that somehow once a newspaper posts a link, they ought to be compensated for that, not only I think it is is wrong in the way things take place, but I think it would create some really dangerous incentives. I mean, the incentive, of course, would be for post media to post as many articles as possible that are all clickable and the like, because in doing so, they would actually know that they get paid simply for posting content on these social media services. I don't think that's that's that, that that's the kind of incentives we want. We want good journalism, not clickbait. Um, and I also just think that there is already value that accrues back to these media organizations. And for the heritage minister to claim that this is immoral when he does it, or to say that he wants to see government cut back on advertising on these services when he himself has been advertising on these services through his personal Facebook, um, you know, it's it's inconsistent at a minimum. Yeah, and on that point, I mean, it's it's more straightforward, I think, for the government to say, hey, you know, this this is um, you know an international company; they don't pay uh, their fair share of taxes in in Canada, so we're not going to advertise on Facebook. We're going to advertise with with Canadian based media outlets. That that would be a reasonable approach, but as you say, it's sort of undercut by the very fact that the government and, and this department in particular does advertise on Facebook. Yeah, well, listen, I, I think my view is that government, that, that advertising from the government isn't a charity. It isn't a, designed as a support mechanism for the industry. It is supposed to be effective advertising. And if you're, you, if the people you are trying to target are on social media, well, then you should be advertising on social media because we want people to know about vaccinations or about the kinds of uh, steps they ought to take from a social distancing perspective and the like. The idea that, that we should avoid those platforms because we're not fans of those platforms so that we have less effective advertising using our tax dollars doesn't strike me as a as a wise use, frankly, of, of taxpayer dollars. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, government can make a choice as to where it wants to advertise. But it's a little tough to, on the one hand, claim, as Guibault did just yesterday, that he wants to, there's been too much advertising on social media platforms, he wants to cut back, and yet he was quite literally advertising on his own social media site uh, like three weeks ago. Right. (laughs) So if we take a step back, though, and I mean, you you mentioned some of the issues with Facebook. Um, You know, does Facebook pay its fair share of taxes in Canada, for example? Uh, What about Facebook's policies, privacy policies? Like, There are legitimate issues when it comes to big tech and when it comes to social media in particular. Maybe we're kind of missing the forest through the trees here, and the government's adding to a lot of confusion around this. Do you see a need for the government to deal with social media companies? And what would be a more valid basis for that, in your view? Well, listen, absolutely. The idea that that we should not be forcing them to pay for links is not to say that we should abandon the prospect of 
regulation in the space. Far from it. And I think there are a number of different places that we ought to be looking at. You've, you've highlighted two in particular. We need better privacy rules. It's, it's very discouraging that the government has sort of barged ahead with, I think, really ill-considered broadcast legislation. And yet a privacy bill that was introduced about a week later uh, hasn't gone anywhere. It's literally just sat there um, by the government and not moved at all. And so it's a little dis- disappointing that the privacy issues that I think, frankly, if you ask many Canadians, what are you most concerned about with some of these services, they'd often point to how their data is used. And yet the the government hasn't moved forward with modern- modernizing those privacy rules. We definitely should be moving there. And I think we should definitely be ensuring that they pay their fair share. The question is how you do that. And I think the best way to do that, the cleanest way to do that, without the kind of market distortions, without the the big overhaul of some of our legislation, is to make sure that they pay taxes. And they're not avoiding paying taxes. They're simply doing whatever the government is requiring them to do from a tax payment perspective. It's the government that needs to step up and fix that. But that's not what uh, what Gibault, at a minimum, has been proposing. Much more, including your latest post on all of this, michaelgeist.ca. Dr. Geist, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. All the best. Michael Geist, uh, the University of Ottawa Law Professor, also Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's certainly been, uh, I think, you know, really following this closely and staying on top of a lot of what the minister has been saying, which unfortunately has often been nonsensical or hypocritical or just otherwise a distraction. So, sure, look, I mean, when it comes to government advertising, the government can choose where to advertise. I don't know how much government advertising is necessary. (laughs) I mean, the idea that, sure, you, you want government messaging to be effective in reaching people. But I think for the most part, if you've ever seen a Government of Canada advertisement, I doubt you've ever had the reaction, well, thank God I saw that. Most of it's pretty useless. And a lot of it's, let's be honest, frankly, political. Governments use government advertising for partisan purposes often. So again, I mean, yeah, in theory, the idea, okay, what's the most effective way of getting our message out? That should be the government's starting point. But if your concern here is that this big foreign company is coming in, it's gobbling up all this advertising revenue, it's hurting Canadian media... Okay, well, then simply choose to advertise elsewhere. It's a little rich for Stephen Gibault to be denouncing uh, the idea of digital advertising when his department and his government does it all the time. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.